It's October 18th, 2021, and this is the Watson Weekly, your essential e-commerce digest. Today on our show, will Macy's be forced to spin off its e-commerce business? Arts and crafts chain store Michaels looks to launch its own e-commerce marketplace. Amazon aggregator Thrasio delays SPAC deal as executives exit. Port delays prompt big company workarounds and government action. And finally, the Investor Minute, which contains five items this week from the world of venture capital, acquisitions, and IPOs. But first, in our shopping cart full of news, will Macy's be forced to spin off its e-commerce business? Activist investor Jana Partners recently announced that Macy's could make $14 billion if it split off its e-commerce business and is starting to demand that the company do so. Macy's e-commerce business unit is projected to reach approximately $8.3 billion in 2021, which would give it about a two-times revenue valuation, using comparables to what Saks.com did when it was spun out of Saks Fifth Avenue earlier this year. What's an activist investor? The playbook usually goes like this. An existing investor in a company sees a big financial opportunity that perhaps other board members see but the management is for some reason opposed to. Often these players buy up a larger share of the company and acquire more board seats to get their way. What follows is very often a very public back and forth between the CEO and the activist investor. Having watched for years similar types of disputes between Elliott Management and companies like eBay, I anticipate some kind of resolution, meaning the investors get some or all of what they're asking for. Why did they do this? To make money. The thinking is, if the company takes advantage of whatever opportunity the investor sees, then all shareholders benefit, not just the activist investors. Well, what does it mean for an e-commerce business unit to split from its parent company? Essentially, what happens is in its place some kind of affiliate or franchise-like arrangement between the entities. On one level, this makes sense. Macy's valuation is approximately $7 billion total. Using Saks comparables, The e-commerce business on its own could easily be worth twice that amount. What's not to like about creating $21 billion in value where there is only $7 billion today? But does this make any actual sense? Of course not. This is about the dumbest form of financial engineering I can imagine. There's only one Macy's brand. There's only one customer. So for investor reasons, you should split apart an entire company? Seems like a big shell game to me. What do you have to believe is that investors really have no faith in Macy's store's business. Meanwhile, they have this internet business that if they were not attached to this historic department store chain, would be worth a lot more. The problem, this is a nonsense premise. The e-commerce business didn't evolve on its own like Amazon did. The only reason people are visiting the website is to make it easier to transact with the store chains they are familiar with. Powered by an inventory assortment only a large store's business could support anyway. So we have the classic confrontation. In one corner, we have investors who just invented a $14 billion payout out of thin air. In the other corner, we have common sense. My advice to anyone looking to handicap this race would be to follow the money. Our second story. Arts and craft chain store Michaels looks to launch its own e-commerce marketplace. The Dallas Morning News brought a new specialty marketplace to my attention being built by Michaels. Here's what we know from the published reports. 
Rather than using an off-the-shelf marketplace platform, the company acquired technology from Zibit. Michael's e-commerce business grew triple digits over the last two years with people spending more time on creative projects during the pandemic. The marketplace is also headed up by a pair of Jet.com veterans, so you know they have both good and bad experiences to learn from in the past and are going into this with eyes wide open. The target launch date is early next year and the company is starting with expanding the supply of craft raw materials to existing buyers. I like this move because it matches their buyers' existing behavior. Where could they go from here? The most exciting possibility I see is what they do in phase two. Michaels has the ability to create new entrepreneurs because of how creative their buyers are. The question I ask myself is what percentage of Michaels' customers are digitally savvy? I'm sure many, but not all are. This could create an entirely new consumer-to-consumer marketplace if the tools are simple enough for the average consumer. Imagine if you bought your craft supplies on Michael's website, and then you were able to add your own creativity and value and sell your creation back to other Michael's customers and other channels like Etsy too. And instead of having to navigate the digital world all by yourself, Michael's helps you out. The key to that proposition would be Michael's viewing this as not simply building a marketplace, but helping its shoppers build digital businesses. The biggest worry in my mind with Michael's strategy is technology. The company is building a marketplace on its own rather than leveraging a third party. While this gives them a lot of flexibility, it also brings some risk. The key determining factor in this case is not the strategy, but the execution of their technical teams, something many retailers are not known for. Stepping back from Michaels and thinking more broadly for a moment, Retailers that are building a new marketplace have only two problems to solve. One, are enough of your buyers looking for additional selection that can be filled by third-party supply? Two, can we drive traffic and conversion of those new items? Let's take these questions one at a time. Are there enough buyers looking for additional selection? The primary mistake that can happen here is misjudging the traffic you have and what your buyers are looking for. If you aren't careful, you will add sellers whose products don't match your buyer's demographic, or you will not have enough scale to drive meaningful traffic to any one seller. If you just need a few more suppliers to test demand, dropshipping may be a better short-term option to expand your supply until your traffic scales. The second question is, can we drive traffic and conversion? In my career, I see too many retailers with less than 1 million visitors per month in traffic trying to start a marketplace and assuming it will ignite their flywheel. It will not because you haven't attracted enough critical mass of shoppers who trust your brand enough to notice the new selection. Assuming you will later figure out how to acquire shoppers from your competition is an extremely expensive and often wrong assumption. Even the mighty Amazon tried and failed twice to launch a marketplace when it didn't understand how to drive traffic and conversion to its items, wasting millions of dollars in the process. Only when it decided to allow third parties to compete on its own product pages was it able to be successful. Grocery retailer Albertsons launched their own marketplace a few years back, only to learn the same lesson 15 years later. The cost of not answering these simple questions properly is extremely serious. More funding will not help solve these problems. It will just create a bigger hole for you to throw more money down. The good news for Michael is that it appears to have an answer to these critical questions at the start of its journey. Our third story. 
Amazon aggregator Thrasio delays SPAC deal as executives exit. This one is a doozy in the Amazon aggregator market with one of the larger players in the Amazon roll-up business. What's happening here? First is several executive exits. Co-founder Josh Silberstein recently left the business along with the CFO, who was only part of the company for a total of three months. Second, there were reports of issues with financial audits ahead of an exit that the company was seeking by the end of the year. Here's my take. First, even though Thrasio's current president said the company was never considering a SPAC, it doesn't mean that they weren't seeking some kind of exit. It's silly for him to say otherwise. The fact that they were considering a SPAC at all tells you everything you need to know. I was speaking with a good friend in the financial industry and there was a reason for a company to consider a SPAC rather than an IPO to exit and that's because the scrutiny and due diligence requirements are much less. Furthermore, unlike earlier this year, the SPAC loophole, if you want to call it that, is closing fast and there are very few companies consider this going forward. Second, corporate governance is a serious thing. Issues with financial audits likely mean that there is no way this company would pass financial muster to go public in the traditional sense. Investors should always insist on certified audits before putting money in anything. Don't just let the fact that someone else has raised a lot of money in the past convince you that someone else must have also checked this out. Hasn't anyone been listening to the Theranos trial? Finally, the fact that a co-founder left before an IPO means one of two things. Are there serious company issues we don't know about? Or did this person get paid a lot of money to leave? Likely the former. In terms of things we may not know, can we just stop for a second and take a look at Thrasio? Over a billion dollar valuation. Three executives were running the ship, none of whom have ever run an e-commerce business in their entire lives. Raising several hundred million dollars and acquiring hundreds of million dollar brands is truly a recipe for a management disaster. Even just the financials could take dozens of people to sort through and fix. Whether the story serves as the canary in the coal mine for the entire sector or, or more of a one-off is the real question. My prediction? Likely 10 to 20% of the sector is extremely healthy with experienced operators running the ship. 25% are in way over their heads and the rest are somewhere in between. This isn't exactly a ringing endorsement of the sector. If the model is to be something like the Procter & Gamble of Amazon, are there even 10 companies that survive out of this current surge of over 100 roll-up companies? Sadly, the long-term answer is likely no. And our last story. Port delays prompt big company workarounds and government action. A new Wall Street Journal report notes that large retailers like Walmart, Home Depot, and Target are flexing their muscles in a battle to stay ahead of all the port delays in the United States. Here's the latest. First, unlike traditional sea freight in which each ship carries over 20,000 containers and can go into only a few ports, these retailer workarounds are trying to use lower capacity ships and route into lesser used ports like Portland, Oakland, and the East Coast. The motivation for these moves is that it's taking about 80 days to transport goods across the Pacific which is about double pre-pandemic levels. And once they get there, they can't get into the ports on time anyway. The solution won't help most retailers, however, as these smaller charter ships are twice as expensive as larger container ships and hold fewer than 1,000 containers each. The funniest quote from this whole experience comes from the VP of Transportation at Home Depot who said, quote, 
This whole idea of charting our own ships started off as a joke, end quote. If that's true, the question for me is, who is the joke on? Maybe the consumers are going to be the ones footing the bill for these more expensive and still delayed shipments. Well, in order to streamline the situation, the United States government is coming into the rescue. The White House is now meeting with e-commerce industry leaders like Walmart and Home Depot in addition to the Los Angeles ports and unions in order to break the logjam. The idea seems to be some kind of government authorization to force ports to work off hours, effectively 24-7. There is some mention here that smaller retailers will also get to take advantage of this. The big problem in this situation is that this will only be so helpful. The U.S. government can't help COVID shutdowns at Chinese and Vietnamese manufacturers or delays at foreign ports. Not to mention, where will the extra truckers come from to ship to already overstuffed warehouses across America? While this backlog is a nice reminder of what the government can offer if it's paying attention, does it feel to anyone else that this solution is about three months too late? It's that time, friends, for our Investor Minute. There are five items on the menu today. First, UK-based fulfillment solution Hubu raised $81 million in a Series B financing. Hubu appears to be similar to folks like ShipHero, ShipMonk, and others in the United States, combining both software and services into one solution. Second, Mexico-based e-commerce platform PDirecto raised $5 million in seed money in order to build its e-commerce platform. The company acts like Shopify might if 30-minute deliveries were built into the platform natively, which is an interesting concept. Third, Poshmark acquired authentication platform Suede One in order to boost its automation for items less than $500. If Poshmark has a clear idea of what is fake versus what is real, this seems like something that could be automated better than human eyes and pecs. On the other hand, if it doesn't, this could be a loophole for seller scams. While this alone won't help Poshmark's flagging stock price, if the promise holds, it's definitely a limiting factor in the value chain, so continued experimentation makes sense. Fourth, SoftBank invests $400 million in direct-to-consumer sports athleisure company Viore. This company became very popular during the pandemic, which likely helped fuel their meteoric rise. All investors are trying to create the next Lululemon. The real test will be when they open their first dozen stores. And finally, e-commerce checkout provider Bolt raised $393 million at a $6 billion valuation to help streamline buyer experiences. Sometimes I get asked, why is this kind of stuff even needed? Providers like Bolt, Fast, and Checkout.com, all of which have raised hundreds of millions at this point, provide essentially one-click checkout solutions to Magento, Salesforce, and other custom headless platforms. The amount of VC funding chasing this space ultimately tells you how bad the checkout solutions are on most of these platforms out of the box. That's all for this week. Till next time, Watsonians. Hi, I'm Rick Watson, CEO and founder of RMW Commerce Consulting and host of the Watson Weekly Podcast, Your Essential E-Commerce Digest. Our show is produced by Citizen Racecar. Alex Brower is the producer and also wrote our theme music. The executive producer is David Hoffman. To hear new episodes of the show every Monday morning, subscribe now at rmwcommerce.com slash Watson Weekly and wherever you get your podcasts.